Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Melissa, one of your hosts today. And I'm Selena, excited to dive in and share these stories with you, one of which is actually mine. And I'm Anita, also back again for this episode entitled Siblings at War. And I'm Rihanna. Yes, in this episode, three sets of siblings fight both with and for one another. Our first piece of the night is by someone we all know and love, who is usually behind the scenes at Life Aloud, Selena Linares. Selena was born and raised in Canton, Michigan, a city 30 miles south of Detroit. She moved to New York City when she was 17 to pursue her studies at John Jay. She hasn't written much since she was a mischievous kid, but since being here in New York, she's become involved with us at Life Out Loud as our digital sound assistant director and one of our production team members, where she helps us with all things behind the scenes. Now she uses her writing as a way to directly share herself with others. Selena plans on becoming a homicide detective for the NYPD, but for now she's just a small girl in a big world trying to find her way. If she could describe herself in four words, she would say she's goofy, spontaneous, loving, and determined. Look out, world. Thank you. Let's take a listen to Selena's piece entitled The Button. I've always wanted my sister to like me. Ever since I could roll. That's right, roll. I skipped the crawling stage. I wanted to be just like my big sister, Natalie. Her and I are three years apart. Get to bed, Selena, is what my parents would tell me every night at 8 o'clock. Well, Natalie got to stay up until 9.30. How come I have to go to bed now, but she gets to stay up? I would whine. You can stay up late when you're older, they'd tell me. Being little sucks, I learned early on. Every time I would hang out with Natalie, or try to, I would always be met with an eye-rolling, go away. On rare occasions, she'd let me stick around, but always on her terms. She was always in control of the game we played. Want to play house? She'd asked. Yeah. My eyes would light up before my brain could catch up to my body. She could have asked if I wanted to play theater, a game where she would write a play and give me roles like the dragon or a stupid tree. I hated that game, but I'd have done it. Okay, so pretend I'm the mom, but the mom is the evil stepmom, and you can be the dog. A dog? I've been waiting all week to play with you, and you finally let me, and I can be a dog? But I wanted to be the... Great, I'd say anyway. If I questioned her, then maybe she'd never let me play with her again. One time, when I had been playing a dragon for at least ten minutes, I dared to say something. Can we play Polly Pockets instead? I asked in hopes of me actually having the chance to be her equal. All right, but I get both Jeeps and the mansion with the pool, she'd said, as she handed me the ugliest Polly Pocket in the box, the one with one leg, a hand that looked like a chewed-up dog toy, and crunchy hair that smelled like Elmer's blue glitter glue. Come on, this is so unfair. You get all the cool stuff. I don't even have a house. Where is ugly supposed to live in the game? I shouted. I don't want her being my neighbor, Natalie had said. You can go to the other side of the basement. Pretend the couch is your house. 
Ugh, can I be your sister in the game? I pleaded. We can share the mansion. I'll even sleep in the pool. Your dolls can have the house. As she continued to stare at the box of Polly Pocket accessories, she'd refuse. You're already my sister in real life. She said it as if it was such a bad thing. I stormed up the stairs, already crying, even though I tried to hide it. I kicked open my Sharpie and dentist sticker-covered door and cried in the arms of my Winnie the Pooh teddy bear. <sighs> Somewhere along the way, I learned that if I did stuff for her, she'd let me hang out with her longer, and she'd even sometimes seem like she liked being my sister in real life. One day, when I was five and she was eight, I was cleaning her room for her, and I came across a jar of buttons. Why do you have so many of these? I asked. They're from great-grandma. You want one? She answered. And then she said I could pick any one that I wanted. Wow, Natalie was giving me something? Maybe this meant that she liked me now, that I'd finally get a chance to play with her, except not by her rules. Sure, I'd said as I dumped out the brown jar with horses on it. I had to pick the perfect one, a prize to celebrate this day, this day when I got to have something from Natalie's room. As the buttons came pouring out, I spotted it. The one. It was a shiny pink one that must have been meant to be because it fell directly into my lap. That one, I told her. She nodded and confirmed I could have it. A real prize! A button with nothing wrong with it! All because I helped clean her room? Is this what it felt like to have a job and get paid for it? No, it couldn't be that. I cleaned her room so many times. No, this must have meant something more than that. Maybe it was because of that time I got Natalie out of trouble for keeping me up. When my parents caught us up late watching Aladdin because she'd been scared and needed me to keep her company. I jumped in. I'd said, oh, dad, it's just that I had a tummy ache and Natalie was just taking care of me. He looked like he maybe didn't believe me, but it worked. I'd saved Natalie. Maybe we'd watch lots of movies now. Maybe she really knew it was good to have a sister. This button was the proof. After that, I kept that button on me at all times. I put it in my pillowcase when I slept and kept it in the front pocket of my favorite pair of jeans that I wore every day. Whenever I was mad at Natalie or felt sad, I would reach in my pocket and grab the pink shiny button. I would grip the button between my palms, squeeze it with all my might, hold it against my chest by my heart, close my eyes as tightly as I could, and wish to go back to the day she gave me the button. I would wish for more days like that one. After counting in my head for exactly 20 seconds each time, I'd open my palms, blow on the button as if I were blowing out candles on a birthday cake, give the button a gentle kiss, and slowly and carefully place the button back in my pocket for safekeeping. You're going to lose that thing eventually, my mom warned. You shouldn't put it in your pillowcase. It's going to fall out while you're asleep, and you're going to lose it and be sad about it. Give it to me. She continued to speak as she placed my button on the corner of my vanity. Put it here while you sleep, she said. I stared at my button's new home before I closed my eyes. Every night, I'd grab the button off my vanity, give it a kiss, and place it back down. Until one night, I must have forgotten to put it back before climbing into bed. Maybe I, maybe I put it in my pillowcase, or maybe someone had taken it. Whatever happened, something wasn't right. <sighs> it's three in the morning, and I'm squirming in my bed. I get up to pee. I'm sitting on the toilet with my size 5 t-shirts around my ankles when I see it. The pink shiny button! It's not on the vanity, not in my pillowcase, it's in the garbage can? What is that doing there? Why would... Did Natalie throw it away? I thought she cared about me now. Why would she throw away the button she gave me? I can't stand to see it in the trash any longer. I reach down and lift it from the trash. I have it in my hands. It's safe. 
I look over at the counter. Too far. I look to my right at the shower. No, what if it goes down the drain? Maybe I'll put it on the floor, and when I'm done using the toilet, I'll pick it up and carry it to my room. No, what if I kick it down the vent on accident? I have to keep it safe. I look down at shorts. No pockets. And with that, I do it. I pop it in my mouth. I don't even care that it's dirty from the garbage can. At least it can't go anywhere. If I suck on it, I can clean it off, I even think. Until, all of a sudden, the button makes its way down my throat. Um, <laughs> ah! I hop off the toilet, shorts behind, and run, naked from the waist down, trying to yell, trying to scream, but I can't. I can't scream, I can't yell, I can't breathe. I lay at the top of the stairs, gasping for air. My dad hears and runs up the steps. Get to bed, Selena. What are you doing? This better not be another one of your tummy ache tricks again. My purple face meets his eyes. Oh, shit. Lisa, call 911. He shouts for my mother as he fumbles through what I'd later learn is called the Heimlich Maneuver. My dad brings me down the stairs and places me on the counter next to the sink. As I sit on the kitchen counter, my heart is pounding out of my chest so hard I can hear it beating. Red and blue lights flash outside my house. A large man wearing yellow overalls and a white t-shirt approaches me with a flashlight. Is this my dad? I think. Who is this man? What is going on? I can feel the button going further and further down my throat. The room feels like a sauna, and I can feel the sweat dripping down my forehead. I come to realize the fire department is at my house. Why would you swallow a button? I hear someone shout, and recognize it's the voice of my dad. Natalie stands in the corner of the kitchen. Selena, let him help you, she says. The man approaches me again, and I punch him in the throat. Sweetie, I can't help you if you don't let me near you, the fireman says. At every step he takes to get closer to me, I kick my legs and swat him away. I refuse to let him touch me. I want my dad, I scream. Okay, ma'am, please follow our ambulance truck with your child in your van. She refuses to let us touch her. It's best if you take her and follow behind us, the fireman says to my mom. Clearly, I can breathe now. The button has moved, but it's partially blocking my throat. I sit in the back of our green soccer mom van on my mom's lap as I chug bottles of eight fluent ounce Nestle Pure Life water. Right before the doctor is about to conduct an x-ray, I throw up. I look down at the hospital floor, and there it is! My perfect button! The doctor picks it up with his gloves, rinses it off, and hands it to me. I thought I lost you forever! I say as I squeeze my button in my hand and run to the car. I can't wait to get home and put it somewhere safe. As we head home, I sit in the back of the van. I'm a little embarrassed, but mostly I'm just mad. Why did you swallow the button? Everyone keeps asking over and over. Why did you swallow the button? That was a big question of the night, really? Why did you put it in the trash? I scream at Natalie with tears in my eyes. I didn't put it in the trash. I mean, I took it from your room and brought it to the bathroom with me. Maybe it fell off the counter while I was washing my hands. I don't know, she tells me. Why would you take it from me? You said I could have it, I yell back. Well, I wanted it back. What's the big deal? It's just a button, she says. Just a button? You barely let me hang out with you, and when you do let me, you're never nice to me. And the other day, you gave me this button. You actually gave me something of yours, and you were nice. <sighs> it's not just a button, I say. Well, you can keep it now, she scoffs. I don't want it back after you threw up all over it. Gross, she tells me. That night, we go home and play Old Maid. I keep my button close by my side throughout the whole game and try to forget about the fact that I almost just died trying to save this stupid button that I thought Natalie cared about me having. Why would she take it back? Whatever. All that matters now is that I have it and it's not going anywhere. Sometime after that, though, it goes missing again. 
We look for it all the next day, and the day after that, and even the day after, but we can't find it anywhere. We eventually find it, <laughs> 12 years later. I still have that button, but I don't carry it with me anymore. I keep it on my desk in its own jar at my house in Michigan. I just can't bring myself to throw away the memories that come along with that stupid thing for some reason. Nowadays, mine and Natalie's story remains somewhat the same. As long as I do something for her, she'll let me hang out with her. Some days she's mad at the world and takes it out on me, and other days she talks to me like I'm her best friend. To this day, when I consider giving up on her entirely, like the time she stopped talking to me for an entire month after I yelled at her for going back to some boyfriend who stole $4,000 from her, yet somehow I was the one being selfish, trying to sabotage her. I think about how she gave me the button. How she let me pick it out. On my terms, not hers. So, yeah. I think about the button a lot. When she lets me down. And even when she doesn't. Wow, that pink button's gotten you through so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice to have you on this side of the mic tonight. I know, it feels so weird. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, so speaking of this pink button, <laughs> so how come this pink button that's so important to you is in Michigan and not in a jar with you in New York? Oh. Good question. <laughs> um, I mean, partially, okay, the reason why I still have it is kind of just, one, I'm a hoarder, so I just keep everything. <laughs> but um, I don't know, like, it's got this little memory attached to it, so I don't want to throw it out. But I was like, it's not really worth, like, bringing here. Like, I'll probably lose it. I don't want to lose it. So I'll just leave it in Michigan. And then when I go home, I, you know, I see it in my room, and I'm like, hey, you. I miss you. <laughs> oh, that's cute. <laughs> So uh, while I was reading your story, I was wondering when you and your sister argue or mm -hmm. when you don't get what you want or time spent with your sister, how do your parents react to it? I know when I have my younger sisters bickering all the time, I always get involved. And if, <laughs> I always give them like, oh, my God, if you do this, you're going to be the one washing the dishes. Oh. So did your parents ever give you like a punishment or like set terms for you two sisters? I mean, I can't really recall when we were younger, but... Um... I don't know. Now that we're older, I feel like it's complicated because, like, my dad is the kind of person who doesn't like to necessarily take sides. Like, he just wants to make everybody happy. He doesn't want to say anything that's going to, like, get anyone upset. So he's kind of like that parent that's like your friend. So sometimes I'll go to him and be like, oh, my God, like, can you believe Nelly just did that? And he's like, yeah, just ignore it, just ignore it. And then... Mm -hmm. Like, when it'll come up in, like, a big, when it's, like, him, me, and Natalie. Um, like, I remember this one time we were fighting, and I was like, yeah, like, dad's on my side. And Natalie was like, well, I just talked to him last night, and he said this. So then it was like, oh. <laughs> and then he was quiet. So he, and then he kind of is like, well, it's your guys' thing, so you have to figure it out. Although, like, sometimes he does see if, like, she's the one out of line. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, my mom is just, um, she doesn't really have a good relationship with my sister. Uh -huh. So she just automatically, like, is like, oh, yeah, your sister's, she's like that. Like, she kind of takes my side. So, mm -hmm. but she, she tells me that I need to, like, stand up to my sister more. Yeah. She's like, I don't know uh -huh. why you let her treat you like that. Like, you need to say something. <laughs> so, yeah. I feel you on that one. <laughs> yeah. 
but yeah, you know, I don't, I don't want it to be like that. Like, um, you know, I want everybody to get along and like, I'm not saying like, I hate my sister. Like, of course I love my sister. Um, yeah, that's pretty clear with the way you told <laughs> the pink yes. button. It's really clear that you love her a lot. Yeah. So now that you're living in New York for most of the year, mm -hmm. is your sister's attitude any different from when she sees you back at home in Michigan? Um, yes and no. <laughs> uh, I feel like, you know, she's such a complicated person. Like, it, it's still and it kind of, well, not when we were younger, but now it's always, I just never know. Like, our, our relationship definitely runs on her terms. So... Mm. It's like, I can never tell if she's gonna be mad at me or like, and sometimes it's not even she's mad at me, she's just mad and then she like takes it out on me. So when I come home, usually like the first day, she's like at the airport and like on top of me, like, oh my God, Aww. I missed you. And like, Aww. let's go out and do stuff. And like, my friends are like, oh, we wanna take you out. And my sister's like, no, I'm taking you out. And then like a couple days yeah. later, you know, I'll be home and she's kind of over it and like, oh. <laughs> you know. So yeah, it depends. And we have like a streak of every time I leave, like we usually end on bad terms. Um. I think it just kind of makes it easier sometimes for her to like, yeah. I've heard like, it's easier to say goodbye to people when you're mad at them. It so is. like when I leave, she's, we usually have some type of argument. <laughs> so did a recent event with your sister trigger you into writing this piece or what was your writing process for it? So actually it started as, um, as like a journal entry, like a little free write mm -hmm. that I had to do. And um, it was actually just the the scene um, where I was, where I'm sitting on the, the counter and after I just swallowed the button and like the fire department comes, um, it was only that that I had written about. And then, like, when I was talking more about it with my professor, she was like, oh, like, what is this story? And then, like, I kind of told her, like, more so about the button. And then getting into it, I kind of realized that it had to do with my sister. Um, and, like, in I kind of incorporated, like, the sister stuff around that button because, um, I mean, I remember in class we were asked, like, what is something that you would never write about? And I always said, my relationship with my sister because oh. mm -hmm. it's so like it's really complicated so I just I wouldn't even know where to start or what right. to say yeah. and I don't I don't want to write something that's like I hate you so much like I don't know so then like it kind of I don't know it kind of just like happened so not it was not really like one I guess the event was more so like the button and then like realizing more so what that button meant and like why it meant so much to me and yeah, the funny part is just because this is a story that always comes up at family events. Like, like everyone's always like, remember that time Selena swallowed the button? <laughs> but like, <laughs> nobody knows it's this whole thing. Like, she gave it to me and like, why it meant so much. It's just the part like, everyone's like, wasn't it in the trash? Like, why why would you put it in your mouth when it was in the trash can? And then you choked on it. Like, that's so stupid of and you. And kicked the guy who was trying to help yeah. you out. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> I, I did not remember that. I had to actually ask my parents and my siblings um, about, like, some of the events of this, like, what happened. Because I, I don't, all I remember is, like, specifically the button part but I don't I don't remember like the details so they were like yeah and you you punched the guy and I was like really <laughs> but it's funny because that's something I would have done because I had the terrible twos till I was like 12 so oh. I would have <laughs> definitely just like punched him <laughs> it was actually interesting when I was like asking 
my mom like parts about the story um i'm sure like it was interesting for her to to kind of find out the background of our relationship because to my parents and um like other family members i feel like when they see us fighting they're like oh you know they're just siblings they're just arguing but it's often like starts at the core of our relationship and like nobody really knows like why or how that linked to the yeah or like how how it linked to the button story especially so i'm sure when it comes up again they're like remember when you saw the button you know i'm gonna be like oh if you only knew like why <laughs> right <laughs> life all out so all in all what would you like listeners to take away from the story aside from not swallowing buttons yeah. <laughs> yes because that's dangerous <laughs> clearly don't put things in your mouth and them. um i would say don't give up on people easily um, you know because okay here's the thing you have to ask yourself is the person worth it is it worth you know is your relationship worth trying to mend or trying to stick around and make things work out because I've always thought you know if this was some friend or something I would be like bye like you you're so rude all the time like all this stuff but I mean at the end of the day yeah we're sisters but we have so much history and like we we go way back and um so you know I'm, I'm interested to see where our relationship is going to go because there's times when I just mm-hmm. want to I thought about just let me just stop talking to you because we have this pattern of like fighting and then she's mad at me and then we're back and it's kind of exhausting but I have hope that (laughs) we're gonna get over it and you know just one day be able to not fight and be friends but more friendly than we are but yeah I I guess I'll say ask yourself if the person is worth it and um yeah to me she's worth it so (laughs) well um i would like to say i'm glad that you have hope i'm sure it's gonna work out with your sister you're gonna fight occasionally but at the end of the day you guys are siblings so you're gonna be best friends yeah (laughs) uh just want to say thank you again for being here tonight thank you for having me Our next story is by returning author Sarah Ali. Sarah Ali is a confident and passionate 20-year-old attending John Jay College of Criminal Justice. With a major in English, she hopes to become a writer and a poet. After taking a creative nonfiction course, she has found her calling in life, revolving around writing and self-expression. Thank you, Selena. Let's take a listen to Sarah's story. I spin around in the rotating chair looking at how empty the downstairs apartment is. All my grandma, mom, kept was the desk and some couches in the living room ever since we moved out to live with our father two years ago. The bright pink walls don't seem to match the empty feeling I get inside when I glance around. I hear my phone vibrate on the desk. As I pick it up, I see that my older sister, Khadija, is calling. Hey, what's up? I answer. Yo, when are you coming home from mom's house? I think I got into a lot of trouble and there's a lot of shit happening here right now. She tells me. Her voice seems shaky. Look, man, I was thinking about spending another night here since school's closed on Monday anyways. I begin to tell her. Okay, fine. We'll talk later. Peace. She quickly hangs up the phone. (sighs) With Khadija, you just never know what to expect. When we were kids, she wasn't afraid to talk to new people or make friends. Every memory I have of us together, she's smiling. Nothing seemed to get her down once she could move to the rhythm of her own drum. 
That's probably why when we were attending Muslim school, it wasn't an easy adjustment for her. <sighs> At Muslim school, we're forced to wear this long, ugly green dress and cover our heads with the white hijab. You can't even show up to school if you don't have the uniform. And the vice principal, who I personally hate because she speaks to the girls like we're not even people, checks to make sure that we have on black socks. Who gives a shit about the color of the socks I'm wearing? It's not going to improve my grades if I wear black socks. If anything, my grades have been worse since I came here. Being in Muslim school is like being in a world that's sugar-coated, one that's bubble-wrapped from reality. This was especially difficult for Khadija since she always felt the need to fit in. She'd want the same clothes and phones as the other kids. If she couldn't afford what all the other students had, let alone relate to them or abide by the same rules, how could she ever belong with them? <sighs> Why didn't she want to talk about it over the phone, I wonder? Did she get in trouble at school or something? I have this feeling in my gut telling me it can't be any good. I know I should go home, but at the same time, I'm not ready to face whatever waits for me. I spend most of my weekends at mom's house, even though me, my mom, and my sisters left. I mean, I never wanted to move out with him anyways, and he's always home on Sundays watching fucking football. Though, sometimes me and Nurm, my seven-year-old sister, hide the remote and change the channel when he leaves. Or he's going up in the attic to smoke pot. He thinks we don't know, but one day when Khadija went up there to smoke, she saw the joint he had left in the ashtray. Plus, we can smell it. I can't stand being in the same place as him again. The only good moments we shared when we lived together in Florida, like going to Disneyland or Butterfly World, I can't even remember since I was too young. The memories I do vaguely recall aren't the best, like saying goodbye to him as he sits in the backseat of a police car with red and blue lights flashing, or the time he threw the remote at me for changing the channel when he was watching football. Football and I go way back. I do remember the time he went missing for a few days when I was about four or five, leaving us without any money to buy food. Somehow my mom found out he went to be with another woman, and she was pissed. Go get all of his damn football jerseys out of the closet, she demanded. As Khadija and I took them out, she grabbed some scissors and started cutting all of them up. First to go was his favorite dark green Jets one. At mom's house, the only green I have to see is the lively lime green hallway that welcomes me in right as I enter. The carpet on the stairs leading up to mom's apartment reminds me of an old motel, but I find it comforting. In the apartment, the walls are subtle shades of yellow, pink, and brown, giving it some kind of surreal feeling. It's like I'm in a dream when I'm here. We had to move from Florida to New York in 2005 after our grandparents found out that we were staying with our father's brother during Hurricane Katrina since we didn't have anywhere else to go. After the hurricane, it seemed like there was not much left for us in Florida, so they bought us tickets and my mom packed everything we owned into two large suitcases and we left when Nirm was barely two months old. We ended up staying with my grandparents for about three years. Every morning when I wake up, mom has a cup of tea waiting for me out at the table and my aunt Asiya makes breakfast for me even though I'm pretty sure I'm old enough to make it myself at 13 years old. I never appreciated the art of making a grilled cheese sandwich until I had tried hers. Most of my time here, Mum and Asiya listen to my rants about my sisters Mia, Khadija, and Nirm. If I want to be alone, I can just go in the downstairs apartment to do homework. None of those things are really possible at my house, and that's why I don't want to go home. Plus, he's living there now. And since Khadija is in some kind of trouble, I know it's going to be a war zone. I'm all the way in Brooklyn, but I can feel the chaos from Queens. <sighs> On Monday morning, my gramps drops me home. As I open the door, I can feel something is off, and the lifeless beige couches that greet me aren't helping the mood. No one is downstairs, and it's almost afternoon. I walk through the living room and go up the stairs, running through the possibilities of what Khadija was trying to tell me over the phone. I walk into me and Mia's room to rest my stuff down. She's laying in the bed when I ask her about what happened. So, I'm not really sure, Mia tells me. It was something about Dad finding out about Khadija's boyfriend. She hasn't left her room since yesterday night, dude. Shit, that can't be good, I think to myself. 
I can't believe she got caught. She's managed to sneak guys in and out of here without our parents ever knowing. She even cuts class to hang out with them now that she's in New York City public high school and not in the Islamic private one anymore. I know our parents pretend to care, but they've been so oblivious that all of us have been able to get away with this bullshit all the time. Mom has only went to one of my parent-teacher conferences since I've started middle school. I walk over a few feet to Khadija's room. The dark purple walls match her vibe perfectly. She's lying face down in her pillow crying. Hey man, have you eaten? I ask. No response. I head downstairs and open the glass door to enter the kitchen. I pop a box of frozen french fries into the microwave for some random time since the suggested time never seems to be enough. When it's done, I put a glob of ketchup on the side. She loves ketchup. I personally don't get it, but hey, I don't judge. By the time I make my way back into the room, she's sitting up in her queen-size bed. Clearly still sulking from her misery, she only eats a few of the crispy golden fries. Now I just need to figure out what happened. How'd you get caught? We're always so careful, I question her. Look, I'm gonna be honest, Khadija answers. Me and Randy had sex, and I just needed someone to talk to about it, so I told Yoshada, and then she told Nadia. She couldn't hide it from Mom, so she told her, and then Mom told Dad. What? I respond. Why the fuck would you tell Yoshada? She's Nadia's best friend, so of course she would tell her. I guess Nadia felt like she should tell Mom because she's our cousin, but I don't get why Mom had to tell him. I began going off about how he was never part of the picture, and why Mom couldn't just keep this between us. When we came to New York, I thought we were leaving behind all the nights at sleeping at other family members' houses during times we didn't have a home of our own. No longer would we not have air conditioning in the middle of sweltering Florida summers. But most importantly, we would be leaving behind my father, and it would just be us. But now we're back with him? How? I think back to the days in Florida when she would be fighting with my father, and I remember her telling him how she would have to give up her own food when she was pregnant with Mia, so me and Khadija would have something to eat. When he would somehow get us evicted from where we were living and found some shitty roach-infested house, my mom would get on her hands and knees to clean the place. No matter how bad things got, she found a way to wake up every morning, get all of us ready for school, drop us off, and then return to the same miserable reality of our lives. For about a year after we finally left him, we all lived upstairs in mom's apartment and the sleeping arrangements weren't that great because there was five people plus our grandparents and my aunt. We take turns sleeping on either the floor with mom on her bed or with my mom and Nurm in my aunt's room. Whoever got to sleep with mom and Nurm would get to stay up and watch Desperate Housewives on this tiny black and white TV with antennas that she found in the garage. We had sleepovers with our aunt and cousins all the time because our room was so spacious. We had fashion shows and played music on our little blue and gray radio, not too loud since mom can still hear us from upstairs. And since me, Khadija, and Mia had finally shared a room again, we got to stay up late and talk shit about our teachers and any other pointless thing we could think of. It felt so good to be back together. And things were better for mom, too. I think I'm going to buy some pans to bake cake, mom said one day. Our grandparents had got her a job, so she had a little extra cash to spend, and if it meant that she would be baking, I was totally on board. Things were so good when it was just us for that little bit of time. (sighs) A few months after we moved to New York, our father followed us. He stayed with his mom, but constantly begged my mom to move out of mom's house since she wouldn't let him come visit her. Mom would take us to visit him sometimes. And then, one day, she decided to live with him again. She said it was the best thing because she felt suffocated by our grandparents. And now, I have to deal with him. I have to deal with things getting blown way out of proportion, like Khadija losing her virginity. I don't even get why it's a big deal when it comes to virginity. I know she's only 15 years old, but I mean, it's undeniable that everyone is going to have sex at some point in their life. And by now, I think every parent should know that if you tell kids not to do something, they're probably going to do it, so I don't know what's so surprising. So what's going to happen now? I ask. They want to take away my phone. 
Khadija says, and send me back to Muslim school. I watch her as she drops to the floor sobbing. She's in denial about having to go back to the hell our parents think is our savior. I try to pick her up, but her body is heavy and lifeless. Come on, dude, get up, go shower. What are you crying for? We'll figure it something out before he comes home. I say as I grab her towel from the back of her door and drag her out from the room. The wooden floor makes it slightly easier to push her weight down the hallway. She finally gets up and goes into the bathroom. She spends her time in there loudly sobbing. It hasn't occurred to me that I haven't seen my mom come out of her room until the moment I hear the front door creak open. Crap, he's home. I immediately roll my eyes and rush Khadija out of the bathroom into her room and I lock the door behind us. We're trying to come up with a plan of attack. Um, there's no way we could say Yoshada was lying because she's an adult and they'll never believe us. And talking it out isn't even an option since it always turns into yelling. He knocks the door and we stand there silently waiting to see what he does. My heart is beating so fast and I'm not prepared to defend Khadija yet, so I think of how to stall, but then he continues down the hallway. We hear him and mom talking in the next room. The walls are pretty thin, so we make out the words consequences, wrong, and phone. Oh no, he's definitely going to go through your phone, I say. Let me save Randy's number in my phone and just try to delete everything else, I tell her hurriedly. Her hands are moving as quick as possible as she types on her red and black flip phone. She's deleting all her texts one after the next. Faster, faster, I'm thinking as her fingers hit the keyboard furiously. My brain feels like it's going to explode trying to come up with some latch-ditch effort to pull Khadija out of this hole she's dug herself. Hoping that the less they find out about her, the better. She's going as fast as she can, except that's not good enough. Khadij, you need to come out. We have to talk. Our mom's voice echoes from the other side of the door. Khadij, trying to use nicknames to make things less intense isn't going to work, mom. I grab the phone out of Khadija's hand and open the door. We walk down to the other side of the hallway and are joined by Mia, who just came out of the room. Nurm comes up the stairs but doesn't really know what's going on. She stays on our side, though. I glare at them and start attacking. What the hell makes you think you have the right to make rules for us? You've only been living with us for two years, I yell. Even if we tried to talk it out, we'll all end up yelling anyways, right? Behind my father, my mother stands there silent. Despite her raising the four of us on her own, basically, she just stands there, letting him run shit. How could she betray us? No one answers my question. It's now a stare down between me and my father. My jaw is clenched and I'm huffing in and out just like the big bad wolf, and he's one of those helpless little pigs in a house made of straw. I try to come up with some smart remark to tell him, but I'm too angry to think of anything. I turn the phone in my hands over and over. They can't tell what I'm doing, how I'm stalling. They want the phone? Fine. Just give it to them, Sarah, Khadija tells me. Here, you want it? You can have it. I throw it across the hall. I rush into me and Mia's room. Before, they can even notice that the battery isn't there. I'm followed by Khadija, Mia, and Nurm. The fuchsia walls make me feel nauseous. Why did we decide on such an obnoxious color? Dude, they're going to see all my texts, Khadija whines. No, they're not, I respond calmly with a smirk. I keep them in suspense for a few seconds before saying, I have the battery. I show them how I've removed the battery from the back of the phone. I can't help but feel badass. But my 15 minutes of fame doesn't even last that long as reality sets in. This was just one small victory. I think my sisters and I knew this war would end in our defeat. <sighs> my older sister would have to return to Muslim school. And we'd all be deprived of whatever little freedom we had. But... If one of us were going to lose, all of us were going to lose. It's the code of our sisterhood. Oh, I love that line so much. I love that this story is like, you guys are always like, like I love that, the code of sisterhood. Yeah. Like You're like, yeah, we got each line. other no matter what. It's really nice. 
Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, you for, for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. We're both very thankful. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in this piece, you show two different sides to your mother as someone with a strong will and someone who is more reluctant to take a leadership role. So what was your thought process on how you wanted to represent her duality? I think like I wanted to show that when she wasn't with my father, like she was more of herself. She was more of the strong, independent woman that she was the whole time. But then when she was with my father, like she allowed traditional values to kind of overtake who she was. And she was like, I'm just going to sit back now and just let him do everything. Mm. Is that like hard to balance like with her, like knowing she's kind of like not has like two different personalities, but like is different in different situations like. Mm. I mean, like, now now that we're older, she kind of understands that, like, we're going to be the way we are. We're going to do what mm. we want. And, like, even if she tries to stop us, we're probably still going <laughs> to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, she just kind of, like, once we're not hurting ourselves, like, she won't say anything. Mm. Like, she'll just let us do what we want to do, basically. Oh, my God. That's so nice. <laughs> oh, no. I'm sensing some, some restriction over there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there's actually, like, a lot of amazing lines in your piece. Like, um, I begin going off about how he was never part of the picture and why mom couldn't just keep this between us. And But if one of us were going to lose, all of us were going to lose, the last line. Mm -hmm. Um, So the difference in tone of these lines is really amazing for me. And it really kind of shows the value of close relationships with your family members. Mm -hmm. So I just figured, what are your thoughts uh, regarding the roles of siblings when dealing with conflict with parents? Um, I think siblings definitely make it easier because who else is going to know what's going on in your house, like your house, you know, what the fights are about or like what's, you know, happening to you on the, you know, on a daily basis. And there's a deep Mm -hmm. history. Yeah. So like, you know, we know each other more than anybody else will ever know what's going on with us. So it definitely helps. I think, you know, having siblings in a situation like that is important. It helps. Yes. (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't from my experience, but you know, (laughs) that's why I really liked your piece. It was like, it really spoke to me that way. Yeah, same here. Um, whenever my parents have issues or something like that, I can always reach out to my sister because mm-hmm. she knows what's going on aside from friends. Yeah. Right. yeah, actually, we all have sisters, so I think that's like really easy to relate to. Yeah. Um, it's funny how like the conflict between parents could sometimes like bring siblings closer because I know siblings like fight a lot mm-hmm. and stuff. Oh, yeah. But then like when your parents fight, you can like go to each other and like talk. Yeah, yeah and then you just you just talk crap about your parents, yeah. <laughs> right? And communication is so much easier with uh, siblings whenever you have issues. Yeah. Speaking mm. of which, um, the communication between the parents and children in this piece is tense and closed off. Has that changed recently? Since I mean, you guys are older. Well, I don't really talk to my dad anymore, so oh. like we have nothing to do with him. But like I said, with my mom, like she is so much more open now, and she won't try to control us. She won't try to restrict us. So it's definitely a more open environment, and we do communicate a lot better now than when we were younger. I know there's a lot of morals in this story about like defending yourself and making taking a stand. What else do you want the readers to take away from this? Um, I think the best thing is like the importance of sisterhood. I believe we go through life a lot and we judge a lot of other women because the way we're raised, there's a lot of competition amongst women. And like even with my sisters, we'd fight a lot because we would think one is prettier than the other. And we didn't realize all that stuff was just through socialization and things like that. But like now that I'm older, I have so much like love for the women in my life, not just blood relatives, but my friends like they like when I'm with them, like I know I'm good. I know I'm strong. I know I'm going to be okay. And I think sisterhood is something that every woman deserves to have in their life. I'm jumping inside right now. (laughs) I know. Yes. You have no idea how it's like hitting at home right now because we have the same issues. My um, 
So we're four sisters and us three are wow. much lighter <laughs> than my youngest sister. Oh my god. So I know exactly what outside you're whenever about. we're together everybody's like, "Oh, is this really your sister?" and like they call her out for her mm-hmm. skin color. It's like it's Yeah, it's crazy. the same thing with my older sister because she's actually the darkest out of all of us and like in like Caribbean cultures and stuff for some reason they have this colorism thing where yes. if you're mm-hmm. dark, you know, you're not as appreciated as a light-skinned yeah. woman mm-hmm. or a light-skinned man. Mm-hmm. And it's like through our childhood, I think that was one of the biggest competitions like she felt she had with us. But now as we got older, you know, now she like loves herself. She doesn't really care and we don't care, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was like, you know, a lot of growth through the sisterhood helped her like appreciate how she looked. That's really good. <laughs> Feminine empowerment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so with that, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I love sharing this story. Thank you. This story is by an author who is choosing to remain anonymous. Anonymous is a passionate writer who enjoys writing about her unusual life. As a survivor of abuse, her dream is to work with victimized children. She hopes spreading her story will touch others and bring hope. Her message is to first forgive yourself, and then you will be able to forgive others. Thank you, Melissa. Let's take a listen to Anonymous's story entitled Sammy. Sammy was perfect before they cut out his heart. Sammy was your brother. There he was at three years old, standing barefoot in knee-high water and squealing. Murky sand swirled where his wobbly footsteps kicked up a mini silt tornado. Sarah, Sarah, caught one. He proudly shoved his slimy treasure in your face and demanded your attention. Yay, we caught one. You hollered loud enough to let the trees in on your special captive. The icy lake water that splashed up to your hips contrasted with the glaring sun that stung your unprotected back. You bounced up and down in barely contained jubilation. The sad frog croaked mournfully, pleading for release, which sent you both into fits of giggles. Come on, froggy, croak, Sammy ordered, dangling it and shaking it to get it to recreate that silly noise. Frustrated with its lack of cooperation, Sammy trudged over to the half-full bucket and dropped it into the growing pile of unhappy amphibians. What are we going to do with all the frogs, Sammy asked. That was a good question. You hadn't thought that far ahead. Let them go, I guess. This whole task was a complete waste of time. Nothing would be achieved. You were headed towards a meaningless objective only to undo all your labor in a matter of seconds. It was pointless. It was delightful. Your eyes lit up in mock outrage when something slimy and cold hit you square in the face. You let out a shriek and ran to the bucket for ammunition. There was a great exchange of heavy fire until the ammo had all been exhausted. The lake water gently lapped at the rocky beach, carrying the victims' bodies to shore. The algae and rocks were strewn with soft, limp, green bodies. Are the froggies sleeping? Sammy whispered. Concern creased his young brow. And regret. Death was something you had heard of. You had a vague notion of the concept, but this was the first time you had seen the life leave something in front of you. There were so many. The frogs were sleeping forever now. Why won't they wake up, Sarah? Sammy's concern was mixed with anger when he jabbed a stick into the distended belly of a nearby frog. Something liquidy and dark oozed out. Sammy's lower lip shook, a harbinger of the coming storm. Screams pealed through the forest as he began to realize the frogs weren't going to wake up. Sammy! You threw your arms around him and held him tight as he kicked wildly, struggling to get away. It's okay, Sammy. It's okay, Sammy. You breathed over and over into his ear. Slowly, his screams died down to occasional sobs and a hiccup. Your stomach was dropping and squeezing. The sight of the massacre made you feel dizzy. Come on, let's go. You hauled him out of the water and started leading him away when he jerked you to a standstill. Sarah, am I going to go to sleep like the frogs? 
The question caught you off guard. At five years old, you hadn't really had a chance to consider your own mortality. No, Sammy, you won't ever go to sleep. I will make sure. I won't let you get hurt either. Promise? His blue eyes glimmered with unshed tears. Promise. I promise too, Sarah. <sighs> you frantically sought to claw that bouncy mop of wiry curls and gaping blue eyes from memory. You almost succeeded in forgetting the way he would press his sticky, jam-covered lips to your cheek. You raged against the sacred images of pillow castles and Lego skyscrapers, his untainted love and innocent hands. They never left for long. Glimpses of a smattering of freckles and long eyelashes invaded your dreams and haunted your footsteps. Every child is Sammy, begging with those eyes to save him. Then, the infection came. His plump baby rolls deflated and hung oddly off a skeletal frame. The eternal impish smirk in his eyes faded to emptiness. They cut out his beating heart and replaced it with a metal clock. They crooned like crows on a carcass and preached to you the miracles of God with every new breath he took. You waited for your Sammy to come back to the pillow castles and Lego skyscrapers. To you. His bedroom, once full of giggled secrets and midnight mischief, was stripped and sterilized. The pinging of a million monitors chirped a monstrous symphony in the background. You hesitantly sat on the edge of the bed that moved up and down like a cheap carnival ride and peered into his hollow eyes. You didn't see a loving God that saved an innocent child. You didn't see Sammy either. You lay next to him, praying and begging his arms to reach out and envelop you, but they remained limp by his side. His hospital gown fell open, revealing the stitches and staples that held his tiny chest together so his body wouldn't force out the metal monster from where his heart used to be. The grown-ups didn't see what you saw. You knew Sammy was lost. They insisted that their Frankenstein puppet could be healed, that Sammy would come home. They dragged in a myriad of doctors, pharmacists, and psychologists to put little Humpty Dumpty back together. They taught him to walk and talk. He could build pillow castles and Lego skyscrapers. But that strange, beautiful boy they superglued together wasn't Sammy. First came the rage. His vicious words and vile slurs crushed any last hope you had of getting Sammy back. Then came the fists, peppering you with purple blossoms. Last came the hands, when he knew you just couldn't fight it anymore, that you didn't want to fight it anymore. You hid from the beautiful metal monster, hoping he would leave you alone, but he had always been better at hide-and-go-seek. You wanted to fight back, to struggle against the beautiful machine, but you were scared that you might break that callous clock that ticked inside. You couldn't fight the hand that closed around your throat or slipped up your skirt, so you killed the last bit of his human heart. You let him know that he was a monster. It never stopped his hands, but it made your heart as empty as his, so he had nothing left to break. You watched him grow from a broken boy to a tortured man. You watched the way he grappled with the monster. You began to see another boy inside, not Sammy or the monster. This boy's eyes never smirked like Sammy's used to. This boy never raised his hand like the monster did. This boy thawed your heart. You were surprised to see that you still had a heart. The monster had frozen it, but this boy was teaching it to thaw. The first time you held that boy in your arms, your stomach nodded in disgust, but your heart began to cry icy tears from the melting cage that shut him out. Then, one day, you said, I love you. You hadn't meant to say it. You realized with surprise that you meant it. This new boy was reteaching you to love, but the monster still lurked inside. It was the monster that tried to kill you. You stood up, staring in confusion at the monster. His gentle features were contorted by a snarl. His eyes rolled white in their sockets. A metal pole with a sizable dent was clutched with his white knuckles. Your scalp had split on impact. 
A runny line of red dripped down the pipe onto his pants. Led Zeppelin's cashmere blared at full volume in the background. Blood painted a delicate pattern down your clothes as you quietly ran, too stunned to look back. Your hands trembled uncontrollably as you dialed 911. All you could see were those wide, empty, blue eyes. You thought that was the end. You could never forgive. You shouldn't forgive. You let the ice seep back over your heart. You found him locked away where they keep the broken boys. A sea of blank eyes and limp frames behind doors that would never open to freedom. Then you saw his eyes. Sammy's eyes with a haunted soul peering out at the world, ready to bolt back into the darkness. He gazed at a piece of lint, not daring to meet the disgust in your gaze. You watched a tear slide down his pants, tracing the same pattern as your blood. You grabbed his shaking hand, wondering how you had never noticed how small it was, and whispered, I forgive you. You hadn't meant to say it, but you did. You realized without surprise that it was true. Sammy, I caught one. You waved excitedly. Come look before it takes my finger off. And with that, the four-inch crawdad sunk its oversized pincer into the meaty flesh of your thumb. Ow, ow, ow. Get it off. Get it off. Get it off. You waved your arm frantically, trying to shake it free. It took air and flew the ten feet to Sammy's ear. Ow. Sarah, you are dead. The world stopped spinning. The monster's eyes filled you up. Sarah? Sammy asked, his voice laced with worry. You took a shaky step backward and slipped on the smooth river stones. Cold, rushing water pushed its way into your nose and mouth. The eyes stared back everywhere you looked, hiding the sun and the surface. It sounded like someone was screaming from far away. It might have been seconds, or it might have been days. Then, a strong 17-year-old hand grabbed your flailing arm. With one heavy heave, you were flung onto the rough riverbank. Sammy towered over you, watching you sputter and cough. His bottom lip trembled. Blood from his ear where the crawdad had pinched mixed with the water dripping down his face. And the tears. He was crying. Hey, Sammy, I'm fine. You tried to play it off like it was no big deal. You grabbed a nearby branch and hoisted yourself into an unsteady standing position. See? All good. Don't be a dork. Sarah, you know you're a klutz. You shouldn't be allowed to walk. He hid behind a well-worn jeer. Sammy's eyes screamed what he couldn't say. I was scared. I love you. Shut up, doofus. His face froze as something slapped him over the head. It was a flip-flop. You stared through his eyes, trying to burn your message into his heart. I love you too. And we are okay. This is such a beautiful story, really well written. And oh my God, it's so touching. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you mm -hmm. for having me. Thank you. <laughs> So one of the first things that I noticed in the story is that it's told in the second person perspective and that it's also in the past tense, which is not typical for um, the usual stories we hear. So could you talk a little bit about like what was your decision in making it that perspective and in like the past tense and like was that decided in the beginning? Did you decide it after? Yeah, it's kind of weird because I never ever write stories in second person. It's always first person, but it just kind of felt, I don't know, this one felt natural. Like I wanted it to be personal for every everybody reading it so I decided to write it in second person instead yeah and there is that because it's just like you are looking at your brother I've always mm -hmm. thought that that was just like <clears throat> an interesting choice when people decide to switch over to that yeah yeah it was very impactful mm -hmm. for the story especially 
Yeah, I love that you did that because I'm a big fan when people write in the second person. I don't know, some people don't like it, but I think it puts me in the story more Mm -hmm. and the fact that this Mm -hmm. story was already um, such a strong story and then the fact that it was written that way was really like, whoa. Yeah, it definitely made it, like, (laughs) so engaging. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like, we were there. Mm -hmm. So at the start of this story, you mentioned Sammy's heart, and you get into a little bit how he got an infection. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Uh, Sure. So when he was seven years old, he got endocarditis. And Mm -hmm. he had, when he was a baby, he had had a problem with one of his valves. So endocarditis is a pretty big deal, but it was worsened by the fact that he had already had this pre-existing heart condition. So so you're actually in Disney World, and it was a really big deal. This is supposed to be this really big family vacation, and he got so sick he couldn't move. Mm -hmm. And we had to push him around in Disney World in a wheelchair, which is really sad. And we came back, and the first thing we did was we brought him straight to the hospital. And that night, he went into surgery, and they said that he didn't have a heart. It was completely gone. It was totally pus. And he sat up on the operating table, looked into the corner of the room and said, I'm dead. And the surgeons were completely blown away because in every single case where a child says, I'm dying, they are dead within the hour. And he had woke up mid-surgery. And my dad, who was in the room with him, kept begging him, don't look, don't look, because we're very, we're very religious. And my dad really believed that he was looking at the angel of death. So he covered his eyes and told him not to look. And he went through a very long recovery period. He had three more following surgeries, and the last one was five years ago. But he is completely fine now. He wow, was a miracle. Amazing. Totally recovered. Wow. Yep. That's insane. Whoa. Ah. Yeah. I don't. I. I, I, I like don't even know like where to even right? begin with that kind of thing with someone so, just like, young. And people always say that kids just have a much better connection to things that are Mm -hmm. beyond us um, in every way, either like perspective wise or in in this kind of thing as well. But just like hearing that, it just gives me chills. It's just it's it's incredible. I'm so glad he's better. Yeah, it was Mm -hmm. pretty it's pretty miraculous. He had 11 embolisms and he suffered a lot of brain damage in his uh frontal lobe so Mm. it contributed to a lot of anger problems later on which is he had like a complete personality reversal after you said in the stories like you watched him turn Mm. into a monster it's just different from Mm. you know little boy you're used to seeing (laughs) yeah it was very it was very weird to see that flip in him oh my god i can't even imagine oh my gosh so at one point in your piece you write you thought that it was the end you can never forgive you shouldn't forgive And then you say, I forgive you. You hadn't meant to say it, but you did. And you realized without surprise that it was true. So throughout your relationship with him, did you guys get into conflict often? Or do you or did you always find it hard to forgive him? So I think probably shortly after he came back from the hospital, there was about a year where he was just like very, very cognitively impaired and very slow. But after that, he caught up pretty quick. Because he was young, so his brain was able to rebuild. But he came mm-hmm. back really, really violent and angry. Mm-hmm. So there was, um, there were a period of probably four or five years where there was he was just extremely abusive and hard to be around. And so I was very angry at him. And our relationship was completely gone, totally deteriorated. I spent half, I spent most of my time hiding from him. And 
then after as he got older it was he it was interesting to see him kind of regretting the loss of relationship like he would come almost looking for me like he'd kind of moved past it and i just wasn't ready to have him back in my life mm -hmm. but after um i think it was actually i went through a period of depression and it was when i was really depressed and i saw him and i was kind of able to like connect to how he felt and that mm -hmm. was actually when we started rebuilding our relationship that's really beautiful how you guys can kind of um, help each other through the different um, like emotional ups and downs of your relationship and it's really amazing to me that throughout like everything from having you know you had such a great relationship when you were younger and mm -hmm. then you know after his um, condition and he started getting more angry and like through everything like it just seems like you guys are always there for each other yeah yep. yeah like I can't, I can't imagine what it's like to like finally see him again mm -hmm. like to like yeah. Oh, it was, it was like the biggest relief. Just <sighs> It just felt like for a long time, I thought he had died. Like I would tell yeah. people when I was nine or 10 years old, no, my brother died. This is someone else. Mm -hmm. And they would look at me weirdly. And I'm like, you don't understand. This is really, really not him. I lost mm -hmm. a brother. And mm -hmm. I think that's really hard for people to understand is that a lot of times you look at these stories where kids were saved miraculously and it's like, well, that's the end. They lived happily yeah. ever after. But yeah. that is never the end. And they're there's lucky like, to be alive and yeah. that's it. And the yeah, there's like, mm -hmm. the alive, story continues yeah. for like mm -hmm. years and years after. So to finally get him back, and he's, a, he's still a different person, but to kind of get back some of that little boy was just the biggest relief. And I missed him so much. So today oh. we're very close. Ow, my heart. I know, <laughs> I know right? It hurts. Oh. I'm glad we got so, to hear this. Yeah. Um, and... If there's anything that you would like listeners or readers of the story to take away, what would that be? I think that I got a lot of grief actually from people for forgiving him, oh. which is, mm. it's weird, but people, you know, people ask me, why do I still live at home with someone who at one point tried to kill me or was so abusive? And it's really, it's really not black and white. And it's so no. easy to look at it from the outside and say, this is a mm. bad person, but people aren't bad people. No. They just, they're people who make mistakes. And especially right. because he was like, a kid and I think it's I don't know it's that's probably the one thing I would say is that there's nothing wrong with forgiving someone and it's mm -hmm. interesting that you get a lot of grief for that but really there's you don't have to hate them because they did something wrong yeah mm -hmm. yeah and especially because it, like it's not even a situation where it's like but it's my brother it's so hard it's to 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 not accept them it's just like no this is a human that I like that connection's just like it's just the, it's like I don't know if it was ever even like a doubt in your mind that you would just like always love him. Thank you for sharing this piece of your life with Thank us you. and a piece of his life and mm -hmm. letting us know that there is so much more that goes on beyond yeah, yeah. the yeah. usual story. That the insights are really nice. Yeah. So All thank right. you for being with yeah. us. Thanks today. for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that concludes our seventh episode of the season. We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about. You can always find out more at lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good, good night! night!